Good afternoon, everyone, on this uh, glorious of glorious spring days. Uh, I want to thank all of you for coming this afternoon uh, to hear the third of this year's President's Lectures. Uh, for those of you who are willing to give up the beautiful afternoon, I can tell you, you are going to be deeply rewarded. Uh, because uh, we are in for a real treat this afternoon in uh, Kathy Newman's lecture. Um, for those of you, this is your first President's Lecture. Let me just say that these lectures were created about five years ago in order to provide um, opportunities for the Princeton community to hear from our own faculty. Uh, I think all of you know that it is a very common practice in the university to invite faculty from outside Princeton University to come and speak at this time. But it was uncommon to have our own faculty have an opportunity to give a public lecture. And that's really why we created uh, this lecture series. And uh, today we have an opportunity to hear from one of the foremost sociologists in the world. It was Kathy Newman. And uh, to introduce her, I have asked her colleague and chair, Alex Cortez, who is the Howard, Harrison, and Gabrielle Snyder Beck Professor of Sociology. As I said, he is also chair of the Department of Sociology, and he is the director of our Center for Migration and Development. Alex. Well, it's a great pleasure to greet you here uh, in this uh, fine afternoon and to uh, what uh, will be a, a, a fascinating lecture by my good friend and, uh, and distinguished colleague, Catherine Newman, as uh, President Tillman mentioned, one of the uh, most distinguished sociologists in the nation, if not worldwide, and certainly a pride uh, to the department and the university. Kathy is the Malcolm Force 41 Professor of Sociology and Public Affairs at Princeton University. She was formerly the Dean of Social Science at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University, where she also held the Malcolm Winner Professor of Urban Studies in the Kennedy School of Government. She is the author of uh, several books, each of which has been very well uh, received and have had a great deal of impact, including uh, Falling from Grace and Declining Fortunes, um, which was named by the New York Times as one of the best books in 1993. Her turn-of-the-century book, No Shame in My Game, The Working Poor in the Inner City, uh, was named the winner of the Hillman Book Prize and the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award for the year uh, 2000. Newman also published A Different Shade of Gray, A Different Shade of Gray, Midlife and Beyond in the Inner City in 2003, which was a qualitative study of aging in New York poorest neighborhoods. And later, Rampage, Rampage The Social Roots of School Shootings, which I believe will be the basis of the talk that she will be sharing uh, with us uh, today. Catherine, uh, in addition to her very active research program, founded the Harvard Program in Sociology and Social Policy, which she shared for six years. Uh, she is an active participant 
in the Eastern Sociological Society, having organized all of the authors' mixed treaty sections of the 2006 meeting, and currently serves in the Dissertation Award Committee of the American Sociological Association and the Editorial Board of the Rose Monographs, uh, Rose Monograph Series uh, in Sociology. Uh, a distinguished career overall in terms of both administration and scholarship, and uh, we are very glad that she is with us uh, in general, and in particular this afternoon. Kathy New. just seen on the screen is a short animated film created by 17-year-old Jeffrey Weiss, a junior at Red Lake High School in rural Minnesota, not long before he gunned down five students, an English teacher, a security guard at the school, his own grandparents, and finally turned the gun on himself. Weiss posted this film to a website viewed by thousands of animation fans and sent long messages to the neo-Nazi site in which he called for racial purity, expressed admiration for Adolf Hitler, and called himself the Angel of Death. The Red Lake community, a remote reservation that is home to the Ojibwe tribe, is 250 miles north of Minneapolis. 90% of the students in the school are poor or near poor. It has no history of violence, though it is plagued by high rates of alcoholism, unemployment, and its students drop out of school at an alarming rate. Jeffrey himself led a troubled life. His father committed suicide when he was 13 years old. His mother was an alcoholic who was committed to a convalescent home after a horrible car accident that left her brain damaged. Jeffrey grew up in a cosmopolitan surroundings in Minneapolis, but as a consequence of all these family troubles, moved in with his grandparents on the reservation in Red Lake, where he was regarded as an outsider, as most people who move back and forth from the city to the reservation are. This profile led reporters to characterize the shooting, which happened only about a year ago today, as the spontaneous, deranged response of a loner to personal tragedy. They emphasized the poverty of the reservation and unleashed a torrent of concerns about the problems of the Indian nation. We may never know the exact truth of the Red Lake shooting. As a sovereign nation, the Ojibwa tribe is within rights to close its borders and prevent investigative journalists or social scientists from learning very much about what happened. But as the few details we have leaked out, it became clear, at least to me, that this tragedy had little to do with Jeffrey's Indian heritage. And while the tragic facts of his biography are certainly psychologically relevant, he was neither a loner nor a loser. His acts were not spontaneous, but planned, and more than a dozen kids on the reservation knew what he had in mind. They just didn't come forward, to their everlasting dismay after the fact. He broadcast his murderous impulses for everyone to see. Indeed, hundreds of people saw the film you just saw. But no one knew how to fit these pieces together, and those who had an inkling 
did not warn anyone who could have intervened. Jeffrey Weiss fits the pattern I hope to talk to you about this afternoon, a pattern that my research team of four graduate students and I came to recognize through two years of fieldwork on school shootings. It's a pattern in which intelligent, intellectual boys in very isolated communities come to see themselves as rejects and seek to reverse their negative reputations, becoming notorious rather than marginal. It's a pattern more clearly revealed, I'm going to argue to you, through sociological understandings of small town life, the pressures of gender policing, and the underbelly of social capital. Congress renewed the Missing Runaway and Exploited Children's Act in 1999 and mandated a study, a comparative and qualitative study, of communities that have experienced school shootings. The National Academy of Sciences was given this project and called me and a few other people known for their ethnographic research in the United States. Since I had never done any field work in the South or focused on crime, I was initially a little bit hesitant to undertake this task. But after digging around a little bit in the newspaper coverage of these terrible events, my sociological nose began to twitch. It seemed to me that there were a lot of unanswered questions that were only being tackled by journalists and the occasional psychological commentator, and that there was a lot more that we could learn about these kinds of tragedies, and that sociology in particular had something to add to our understanding of these events that more individual-centered perspectives uh, might not see. Well, one of the first tasks we faced was to define the phenomenon we were trying to explain. There is one existing database prepared by the Centers for Disease Control that takes one cut at these issues. They include all homicides committed on school property or involving students and personnel on their way to school. This means instances of gang violence, of drive-by shootings uh, are all recorded in this database, and that was a wider definition than what we were looking for. The kinds of shootings that Congress had in mind had particular characteristics that set them aside from other kinds of homicides or disputes that settle into school property. Instead, we tried to narrow the definition to what we thought Congress had in mind, rampage shootings in schools. What were the characteristics of these particular kinds of homicides? First, they involve multiple victims. They occur on school property. They involve a member or former member of the institution. And there is a random selection of targets, or sometimes a target is chosen but a radiating circle of victims who have no connection to the original target. Most of all, there is simply a random selection of targets, and the shooters don't even know who they've shot until long after the fact. We have evidence of these kinds of shootings going back for about 30 years. But as this graph shows you, they were very few in number until the 1990s. We then begin to see a spike in the 90s that reached its height in 1998 with the horrible episode at Columbine High School. For reasons that I'll go into later, after Columbine, the numbers began to fall, but not the near-miss plots, which is what you see in the red lines and what seems to have transpired in nearby Winslow High School just last week, where two or three people were arrested, young people were arrested for plotting to shoot 25 kids in their school. So the red line shows you the number of plots uncovered by the police before they got to the shooting stage, but where there's credible evidence that a rampage shooting was in the works. 
Initially, journalists and pop psychologists pointed to a southern culture of violence as an explanation for the eruption of rampage shootings. We looked at this very carefully and concluded that there really isn't a regional pattern to these horrible tragedies. What emerged in the South initially spread very quickly. So there's very little evidence for regional clustering, as you can see from this map of tragedies. That's not to say that geography is unimportant. Rural and suburban communities account for about 95% of the cases on the graphs I showed you. These kinds of incidents virtually never happen in urban areas. So we were assigned, or we, I assigned us, I suppose I should say, uh, two case studies. I assigned myself two case studies in the South, in part because I wanted to do some research in a region of the country I hadn't focused on in my earlier work. Westside, Arkansas, and Heath, Kentucky. And there are three sociological questions that I want to uh, run through with you today. First, why do they do it? What motivates these shooters to take such drastic and horrible action? Second, in the face of an awful lot of evidence, and I use evidence in quotes here, that something horrible is on the way, why was the school, why were any of these schools <clears throat> unable to see the catastrophe coming? And third, why were the communities in the dark? There, too, there's evidence churning around, boiling around, that something terrible is on the way, but they cannot see it coming. Why not? The first case I want to talk to you about occurred in a rural school district about 20 miles outside of Jonesboro, Arkansas. Jonesboro itself is a very small town, about 55,000 people, tucked into the northeast corner of Arkansas, about 130 miles from the capital of Little Rock. It is a deeply religious community. There are 75 churches within the boundaries of this small town of 55,000 people. People commonly attend church on Wednesday nights, on Saturdays, on Sundays. I attended many of the churches myself during the time I was there. Churches organize social activities that encompass almost all the residents in these small towns. Mind you, the shooting didn't happen in Jonesboro. Jonesboro is a huge megalopolis by comparison to where the shooting actually happened. The Westside School District is made up of three very small communities that lie 20 miles from Jonesboro. The largest of them, Bono, has only 1,000 residents. And as you can see, it's a rural area of rolling hills. This is downtown Cache, Arkansas, the second largest community in the Westside School District. With only 280 people in the community, the Cache Cafe is the only place where they can congregate, and you can get a pretty decent pulled pork sandwich there, but I wouldn't recommend anything else. It's a long way from La Hierre's, I can tell you that. Egypt, Arkansas, is even tinier, population 112. The gas station is the mayor's headquarters. It's the place where residents congregate to exchange news of the day, but mostly they don't congregate at all. The shooting took place in the West Side Middle School. It is a school of 6th and 7th grade students, about 250. They are mainly middle class. They are all Christian and white. There is no background violence, no record of background violence in this school. And in fact, there's no record of background violence in any of the schools where rampage shootings happen. Violence is not what people worry about. They worry about whether the buses will arrive on time in the morning. 
The school has an excellent reputation. People leave Jonesboro to move out to this rural area in order to enroll their children in this school. Nonetheless, there is some class variation. About one-third of the students do qualify for free lunch. Those are the poorer students in the area. On March 24, 1998, Mitchell Johnson steals his family car. He and Andrew Golden then go on a, a shopping venture, if we want to call it that, stealing guns from the households they come from. They drive very very uneasily, because the oldest of them is only 13 years old, drives to the school, the first time he's ever tried to drive anywhere, assume a firing position on the hillside behind the middle school. Andrew runs down the hill, pulls the fire alarm. The students and teachers exit out of the, of the building onto a playground in full view of the hillside, and they unload automatic weapons and kill five kids, no, four kids and a teacher and wound ten. Police then arrest Andrew and Mitchell. What do we know about these young men? Mitchell Johnson. Mitchell Johnson had a pretty troubled life just like Jeffrey Weiss. Uh, as a young man, he lived with a very verbally abusive and aggressive father. Unbeknownst to anyone in his family, he was sexually assaulted as a young boy by a neighbor of his grandmother. His parents had a very tense and argumentative divorce. His mother moved frequently afterwards, but Jonesboro was actually a very positive move for the family. He was probably the happiest he'd ever been in Jonesboro. He was a good student, pulling A's and B's. He was known in the community and by the teachers as the model child, that is, by the adults. He was the yes ma'am, no sir, the kid who held the door open for the lady teachers, as they came in in the morning, and hence he was the last person they ever imagined would do something like this. But his peers were not all that surprised because to them he was a swaggering bully. Mitchell had an explosive temper which he unloaded on kids his own age, but he kept this very segregated from the view of his teachers. Andrew Golden, 11 years old in the sixth grade at the time of this shooting, Andrew came from a solid, hardworking family. He was a golden child. He was the only child in this family, and they absolutely doted on him. Indeed, in retrospect, many of the teachers blamed the family for doting as much as they did. This was a very loved young man. Family of avid hunters and gun enthusiasts. You see Andrew here holding one of the guns he was trained to shoot. He was an expert marksman. He had all kinds of certificates for his um, Hunting ability, and by the way, guns are very common in this part of the world. People hunt a great deal. Guns are not unusual. They are part of the local community. If anything, they've declined over time uh, in, in their presence in the daily world because when Andrew's parents were young people, they'd, they'd leave high school at the end of the day, and they'd go, go out hunting every day after school during hunting season. He was an average student, again, A's and B's, no real disciplinary history. In fact, school shooters almost never have a disciplinary history, and I'll try and explain why that is such a problem for detecting them. He was unnoticed at school, but he was a definite menace in the neighborhood. Andrew was known for being obnoxious, scary, for torturing cats in the backyard, or at least he was known by his neighbors. He would ride around the neighborhood with a knife sheathed to his leg, uh, and when, <clears throat> when kids would say that they were scared of him, the parents would 
say, I'll drive you to school so you don't have to sit on the bus with Andrew Bolden. But no one in the school was particularly aware of this behavior on his part. He was basically kind of a zero, not really noticed either way. Heath, Kentucky is a rural community west of Paducah. It's, it was a farming economy for the most part. Farming has almost disappeared now. It's a place of new professionals and managers, a small and tightly knit community, economically diverse, but again, just like West Side, racially homogeneous, also deep into the Bible Belt. Paducah itself, again, the local large town, has only 25,000 people and sits at the confluence of the Ohio and Tennessee rivers in southwestern Kentucky. This doesn't look all that surprising. This is what the area outside of Paducah looks like, so-called Heath area. Uh, but it is an area of, of mixed economic standing. Some people live in houses like this, um, particularly those who work in the uranium processing plant as scientists. So you do see McMansions like this. More modest houses like this are the more common feature of the area. And then there are trailer parks like this where the poorest residents live. In the outskirts areas where the shooting took place, all of these homes, again, are inhabited by whites. There are African Americans in the city of Paducah. They had nothing to do with this. Heath High School is the center of life in the community. It has 600 students, which should tell you something about the argument that school shootings take place in large schools. They don't. They take place in very small places. About 60% of the students are college-bound, but very few of them leave the area. They tend to go to Arkansas State, which is very nearby, and they live at home. It's a very, very stable, one would say almost claustrophobic place in the sense that no one leaves. No major discipline issues, no violence prevention in place because no one thought it was necessary. The shooting in this high school was conducted by Michael Carneal. I will tell you about him in a moment. He came into school on a Monday morning after Thanksgiving in 1997 and unloaded a shotgun into a prayer group that met routinely every morning before school began. Eight shots, eight victims, three people died, five were wounded. The shooter, Michael, drops the gun and surrenders to the principal. What do we know about Michael Carneal? 14 years old, freshman in the school. He'd only been there for three months when the shooting happened. Came from a very stable family. Father was a lawyer. Mother was a homemaker, very well-educated homemaker. Michael had the reputation for being awkward. A jokester, a prankster, but very high IQ. Unbeknownst to anyone in the high school, in eighth grade, his grades slipped down to an average of a D minus. This very smart kid who tested above the 90th percentile. Nobody paid much attention to this fact, and certainly the high school was totally unaware for reasons that I will explain to you in a moment. He uh, was a joiner. He was at least he was attempting to join social groups that he hoped would accept them. Marching band is a very important institution in most southern high schools. A huge attendance, very important to participate. Parents participate, kids participate. Michael was one of two kids in the 60-person marching band who was told there wasn't sufficient uniform to accommodate him, so he had to step down from the marching band. Minor discipline problems, nothing anybody remembered particularly importantly after the shooting was diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder. This is a picture of Michael, Car a very depressed Michael Carneal at his arraignment uh, sitting next to his lawyer. Well, what kinds of background events would, would we point to if we were looking for the individual story behind these shootings? 
We would certainly find some. Mitchell's molestation as a child, the fact that he was left stranded in Chicago, stranded between two parents who were shuttling him back and forth uh, in the wake of their divorce. Nobody knew where he was for two days at a very young age. Uh, he started making, using his father's credit card. It's a strange father's credit card for sex talk phone lines, ran up a bill, and his father threatened to take him away from his mother when that happened. He was kicked off the basketball team. He was dumped by a girlfriend. And certainly all these things added up to uh, a, an episode of, of great anxiety and upset for Mitchell. Andrew, there's no particular evidence of any precipitating events, but he did either threaten to suicide, to commit suicide or to harm others, a threat that was heard and reported to the school, but nothing happened. So let me turn, with, a, with that background, let me turn to the first sociological mystery, what motivates the shooter? Why do they do it? Well, I don't believe there is ever going to be any way of predicting in advance who becomes a school shooter. The Secret Service, which is in the business of predicting rare violent events, concluded as much when they took a look at this phenomenon. What our field work could answer, I hope, though, is why kids who do murder their classmates do it. We can't tell you who will do it in advance, but we can tell you something about why those who do it actually follow through. The answer has to begin with a diagnosis of the way they see themselves in peer society. School shooters are always boys, and they're often quite smart. They tend toward the nerdy side. They are rarely good at sports. Jeffrey Weiss, the shooter in Red Lake, enjoyed reading the classics and wrote extensively about them on his website. He was a fine writer. You can just see the IQ points pour off the page when you read his writings, and a very keen observer of the social system around him. Unfortunately, these are not qualities that young men are admired for very much in peer society, and particularly not in the part of the world where they live. Boys are not supposed to be reading Camus or writing social criticism. One imagines the Unabomber's desire to be known for his trenchant critiques of modern society placed him in a similarly marginal position in his high school. <clears throat> in the two communities that we studied at close range, to be an intellectual boy is a social liability. Jocks and cheerleaders really do rule the roost. Of course, this is true in many American high schools, but in these very small rural towns, where there's nothing much to do, the sports teams are the focus of attention for the entire community. Adults turn up in droves to the high school football games. Parents travel every weekend with the marching band. The pep rallies are the biggest gatherings for miles around. And there are many virtues to this kind of manly culture. It provides a social glue that really does unite the adults and children, unites the generations in these communities and gives everybody something to rejoice about when the team uh, pulls a victory. But if any of you have seen the remarkable film, Friday Night Lights, which chronicles a year in the life of the Odessa, Texas football team, you know that where sports rules, there's often little room for anything else. The whole local culture revolves around this hierarchy of sports heroes and their admirers. And when you live 250 miles from the nearest city, tucked way up against the Canadian border. You cannot hop on a subway and go down to Greenwich Village to find people who look and are interested in things like you. You can't find an alternative culture very easily where you are. Hence, when a boy flunks the test of his peers, he not only flunks the test in his school, but in the rest of the community as well. 
This happens in suburban communities and may well have been what was going on in Winslow High School. Those of you who saw bowling from Columbine know what I mean. The shooters in Columbine went after the jocks first as a first order goal. In the small towns to fail at sports ensures that others will be suspicious of your manhood and they don't mince words about it. Michael Carneal's case was even more extreme. He was labeled gay in print in the school newspaper. No one could live down that kind of character assassination, not in a small southern town where there's probably no more damaging label for a young boy than to be called gay. Because shooters often suffer from the early onset of mental illness or depression, even though they are almost never diagnosed, never under treatment, the power of the teasing and bullying that they, are, that they experience is magnified in their minds. Most kids will experience the kind of bragging, teasing, and ostracism at some point in their lives. This is not an uncommon jockeying for social status, but it ramifies in the mind of someone who is in the early stages of mental disorder. Their interpretive equipment is faulty. Oddly enough, if the shooters were lonely and loners, as the newspapers often report, they would have an easier time of it, but they're actually not loners. They do seek inclusion, but they are persistently rebuffed. That's why we say they suffer from frictional marginality. They experience a kind of rubbing up against social groups. They try to penetrate, try to gain acceptance, and are always being rejected. So their daily experience is one of being rejected, and the group, social groups take a little bit of pleasure in policing the boundaries against these kids. Michael Carneal sought every opportunity to worm his way in. He tried the band crowd. They weren't buying. He dallied with the religious kids, but concluded they were hypocrites and they weren't willing to tolerate him. Finally, he turned to the one crowd that rejected this whole status order, the goths. This is the leader of the goth group at Heath High School. This is the darkly charismatic young man that Michael desperately wanted to impress. But he was largely unsuccessful with this group as well. He started down a long pathway of trying much harder. He stole CDs and passed them on, trying to suggest he'd been shoplifting. He stole a gun from his father and gave it to them. They said this wasn't the kind of gun they wanted. Nothing was working to get the attention of the goth group until Michael started talking about shooting people. He and a group of five or six other boys started having conversations that the goths later, under police questioning, regarded as fanciful conversations. They started talking about shooting people in a shopping mall. Then they started talking about taking over a school. These conversations progressed from fantasy to a plan in Michael's mind. It's not entirely clear what they represented to the goth kids. But none of these conversations ever cemented the feeling that Michael could depend on their friendship. He was still on the margins having to prove himself. So he had a problem, but he wasn't running from it. He was trying to solve it. The problem was his reputation. The solution, he thought, was to do something dramatic. Something that would transform his persona from a loser to a notorious, dangerous, alluring winner. Someone who looked a little bit more like this guy. As he put it in the psychiatric interviews that were conducted after the shooting, and I quote here from his, his comments, everyone would be calling me and they would come over to my house or I would go to their house. I would be popular. People who go to jail in our school have lots of friends and all the kids say, wow. 
This is what Michael was thinking about as he plotted this shooting. This is what he thought the outcome would be. He wasn't thinking about who would die. He was thinking about what this guy would do. He would call him, come over to his house, and Michael would have a friend. The decision he made to execute the shooting was, in the last analysis, the final act in a long drama designed to move him from the periphery of this last group he tried right to the center. There are other motivations at play. Some school shooters are looking for an exit from an intolerable existence at the hands of police. But none of the school shooters are simply trying to commit suicide. They are trying to commit suicide sometimes, but that's not all they're trying to do. They are aiming for a reputational reversal in order to banish the negative status that plagues them. And they do that by replacing one bad image by, by one they think is superior. But in order to do this, they have to attract attention. Spontaneous behavior isn't going to cut it. That's not going to win them the attention they're looking for. They want their peers to treat them as special. So they start to say things that gain attention. When Michael fantasized with that goth guy about shooting up a mall, he generated some interest. But the only way to sustain that attention was to make promises, to hint about dark intentions. And once those promises leaked from his mouth, he could not back down. Shooters let off idle threats and then find that they have to make good on them. To back down after claiming that you're going to do something dramatic is to lose face all over again. Second mystery, why are the schools in the dark? Sociologists have studied the workings of complex organizations for many decades now. It's one of my favorite parts of the discipline, actually. We're interested in how bureaucracies function, in particular how information travels in bureaucratic settings, how decisions are influenced by the quality and quantity of information that moves up and down a hierarchy toward managers or around a firm involving workers. You can see this kind of preoccupation at play in my home discipline in the revelations about the difficulty the FBI field officers had in getting higher-ups to pay attention to their suspicions about Zacharias Musawi. In all complex bureaucracies, there are filters that work to screen out information, the absence of which can lead scientists in NASA, managers in a bureaucracy, or teachers to be blind in the face of murderous intentions, even when those intentions are being broadcast. As I said, Michael Carneal had only been in Heath High School for less than three months when the shooting happened. What did the teachers and administrators know about his history? Not much. Much of the disciplinary background we uncovered as we backtracked through his life developed when he was in middle school. I already told you about the grades plummeting. No one in the high school knew about that. He wrote very violent stories, very violent, and I put them in the book that comes from this project so that my readers could judge what they would have done if they had received essays like this, using the real names of classmates in the English class and threatening mayhem and violence against them. He grabbed a fish out of its tank and stomped it into the floor when he was in eighth grade. Lots of incidents of this kind cropping up at the beginning of high school, but no one was able to discern a pattern in this behavior. Part of the reason was what we called structural secrecy. Middle school disciplinary records are shredded when the kids graduate. The high school knows nothing about them other than name, rank, and serial number, or rather social security number. As with most organizational practices, there are virtuous reasons for this. School officials maintain, and we would probably support them in this to some degree, 
that a kid who has a bad year in the eighth grade shouldn't be saddled with that reputation. They should get to start over again in ninth grade. This is a clean slate society. We allow people to start over again all the time in our culture because we think people should be able to make mistakes and then start again without prejudice from the past. Sociologists have coined terms to describe teacher expectancy effects that tell us that it's really bad when teachers get negative reports because then they're predisposed to see negative things. So the trail of misbehavior that might have been interpreted as a signal that Carneal needed some help went cold at the end of eighth grade. The clean slate theory these schools put into practice is particularly pronounced across these institutional boundaries. But it's also practiced year to year. Very minimal information is passed along about student conduct from one teacher to the next. And this too is deliberate because teachers are trying not to prejudice one another against a kid who might have messed up in their year. Confidentiality also plays a role in the loss of information. The division of labor in schools vests information about a kid's problems, to the extent that it exists at all, in the hands of a few specialized people, principals or counselors. And they don't spread the information they have around. The school principal and the librarian knew that Michael had been looking at pornography on the library computers, but they didn't know he'd written disturbing murderous essays in his English class. The teacher who knew that Carneal was starting to run his handwriting together in something that could only be understood as a sort of schizophrenic ballad within a couple weeks of the shooting, never mentioned this to a principal or a counselor. She just asked Michael to rewrite his papers. The teachers who knew that Mitchell Johnson swore a blue streak in class didn't know that he wrote a threatening essay in his detention. Information is partialed out, rarely collected in a single place, and divided by institutional boundaries. Structural secrecy, the official division of information in organizations, compartmentalizes what we know about a student and makes it hard to see patterns across time. The mixed signals problem makes the pattern even more difficult to detect. What do I mean here? Like all kids, school shooters are very practiced in the art of segregating their audiences and treating them to different sides of their character. I'm quite certain my own children don't behave toward me uh, the same way as they do toward their peers. Mitchell Johnson, as I told you, was regarded as a choir boy by most of his teachers. We interviewed them extensively, and even three years later, they were shocked that he was the shooter. They could have thought of 50 other kids who would have come ahead of him in the ranking of probable disorders. A short while before the shooting, one of Mitchell's teachers went out of her way to write a note to his mother, which she showed him, to say how much she appreciated his politeness and good behavior and how proud his mother must be of him. This was a spontaneous note from one of his teachers with this beautiful card. These teachers didn't see what the detention teacher saw in Mitchell. She got so scared when she saw the essay he had to write in detention that she went to the principal to confess her worries. None of the other teachers were aware of this swaggering bullying side of Johnson that he routinely displayed to his peers. All three shooters we studied closely and what we know of the others were able to conceal the discrediting parts of their behavior, much, although not all of the time. They were giving off mixed signals. Information fragmentation made these problems more complex to identify. The daily schedule of middle school and high school leaves each teacher with only 50 minutes with their students, only a 50-minute slice of behavior to witness. 
It's nearly impossible to pull a pattern of behavior together when no adult sees more than a little bit of any given day, and when there are no mechanisms that share information across boundaries. Loosely coupled systems. Sociologists of organizations distinguish between what we call loosely coupled and tightly coupled systems. So our colleague at Yale, Charles Perot, did a lot of interesting research on the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster, which our students are probably too young to remember, but the adults still may, um, which showed that the complexity of a tightly coupled organization, in which every part of the production process is tightly linked to the next part, is sort of like an assembly line, is very delicate. If a problem occurs in one part of the organization, it quickly ramifies to all the others because they're interlocked like a link in a chain. One mistake in a nuclear power plant, and it spreads like wildfire and is very hard to contain. From this, Perot concluded that loosely coupled systems are better. They're protective. They prevent this kind of cascade effect and make it possible to isolate a problem before it sort of ruins the whole enterprise. Well, schools are textbook cases of loosely coupled systems. Their parts operate independently of one another. Teachers are granted a great deal of autonomy while relying on professionalism to make sure their aims are, are positive. But loosely coupled systems make it very difficult to observe problems building up in the constituent units. Problems go unnoticed in a school, especially when they don't disrupt the basic functioning of the institution. Nothing that Michael Carneal or Andrew Golden did ever brought their school to a grinding halt until the day they murdered their classmates. In a loosely coupled system, only a very squeaky wheel gets much or brings down the disciplinary hammer. Truly disruptive kids, who really do threaten to make the classroom a sort of impossible thing to operate, are dealt with quite harshly. They're often removed into segregated continuation schools. But school shooters never fall into this category. They are not the squeaky wheels. Again, 50 other kids came to mind before Michael or Mitchell Johnson. That's because what you're looking for in a loosely coupled system, what the disciplinary system is set up to catch, is the egregious troublemaker. When routine disasters stem from informational breakdowns, loosely coupled systems are more problematic than tightly coupled ones. They permit festering, and they promote institutional blindness. So these features, structural secrecy, mixed signals, and the liabilities of loosely coupled systems, help us understand why, in the face of a great deal of evidence, nobody could see this train wreck coming? Now, why do kids not tell? Because the one group of people that does know something's coming are the peers. The most important reason why the schools don't know it's coming is that peers don't come forward. In the book on which this lecture is based, I compile a very long list of kids with very detailed incident reports who heard the shooters say something pretty specific about what they had in mind. Actually, their comments ranged all the way from sort of veiled threats to taunts and, and everything in between. But they would say things like, well, Andrew got up on the table of a cafeteria, a table in the cafeteria in the lunchroom only a few days before the tragedy in Westside and proclaimed he was going to shoot up the school. Mitchell Johnson told several kids that they wouldn't see him for a while because he'd be running from the cops. Thinking, what is he talking about? The shooter in Bethel, Alaska, took out the school principal at a 16-year-old star athlete, called 20 people the night before the shooting and told them exactly where to assemble to watch him do something terrible. They showed up almost to a person. One of them came with a video camera. 
but not one told an adult what they knew or what they heard, not one. Some of the warnings that Michael Carneal gave were specific enough to cause some kids to stay away from the school or from the lobby of his high school on that fateful day. Many of the kids at Westside knew who the shooters were before the police captured them on the hillside. They didn't need to be told by the police. They knew. Why did they know? They knew because the shooters had told them. And the shooters tell them because their mission is less to kill people and more to attract attention. As I told you, you have to broadcast your intentions to attract that kind of attention. Given this pattern of warning behavior, why didn't kids come forward? Well, there are a variety of reasons um, why the best source of information isn't really available to school authorities. First of all, kids are really afraid of losing friends. They are afraid of being perceived as a turncoat, a rat, particularly in adolescence, which is the period when they're trying to establish themselves as separate from the adult world. Being labeled a mama's boy, a teacher's pet, or a rat is discrediting in the extreme, and they will go to any length to prevent this from happening to their reputation. However, if the threat is really serious enough, they do come forward. How would they know if it was serious? Well, there's the rub. The case studies that we worked on occurred early on in this mini-epidemic. The whole concept of a rampage shooting on school grounds was new and still largely unprovable. Hence, when kids heard these warnings, it meant something very different in 1997 than it meant after Columbine, when this became a script that was known in the world. Though, how long that protective effect lasts is a big question mark when you see what happened in Red Lake. But given the frame of reference at the time, backing up to their mindset then, it really wasn't easy for kids to interpret what they were hearing. When Mitchell Johnson said he was going to be running from the police, they didn't know what he was talking about. When Andrew Golden got up and announced he was going to shoot people, they thought he was kidding. Without the right framing that a school shooting is possible, the signals are weak and ambiguous. When the speaker is known, as all three of these boys were, as the kind of kid who always says outlandish things, who's always trying to get attention, a warning of this kind is treated as one more dumb thing Mitchell said. So when the signals are mixed and the stakes of coming forward are so high, the stakes to your own reputation as a reporter, the cautious teen hangs back and keeps it to himself. And the reticence is encouraged, we discovered, by a rather cynical view that teenagers have about the responsiveness of people like us, the adults in bureaucratic organizations. They gave us example after example of adults who, when presented with trouble, would tell the kids in so many words, you know, you really have to learn to handle your own problems. Don't bother me. I'm really busy right now. I'm sure it's not that serious. Alternatively, those who take a complaint seriously and often fail to keep the source of the information private. Kids who were privy to warnings about school shootings held back because they thought they would be identified as the source. And they had lots of examples of where they had come forward with some piece of information that was known within 24 hours all around the school. Post-Columbine, this pattern shifted for a while. More kids came forward with information in the years immediately after, and that was that red dotted line I showed you. But how long this will be the case is anyone's guess. It doesn't appear to have been all that long. Why did the community not see this coming? Let's look now for just a few minutes at what the community knew about these boys and ask why people outside the school couldn't see it coming. 
Troubling things happened outside these schools that should have been red flags. Adults who were in routine contact with Michael Carneal heard him make statements repeatedly about how he would solve problems with extreme violence. His Sunday school teacher, with whom he took confirmation classes for a year before the shooting, remembered how she would present hypothetical dilemmas to her catechism class and ask them how they would respond to these dilemmas according to the Lutheran teachings of the church. Michael was known for saying that he would address these dilemmas by getting out bazookas and blowing people with human guns. Adults and teenagers witnessed him reacting in frustration by throwing bicycles into a bonfire uh, and throwing his Halloween candy to the ground in absolute frustration. I told you about Andrew Golden and the menacing knife sheathed to his leg. I told you that he was known to have starved kittens in the barrel in the backyard and to poke their heads through the holes of storm fences. He scared some of these neighborhood kids enough that they went to their parents and complained. One parent who had psychiatric training, who was trained as a psychiatric nurse, who must have known what animal abuse means as a signal of disturbance in a kid, again told her daughter, don't worry, I'll drive you to school. The information never filtered back to the shooter's parents. Why not? Well, first, the master narrative in both of these communities interfered with the capacity of some residents to understand what kind of trouble was brewing here. Heath and Westside really are perfect places to raise a family, and there are legitimate reasons why people think so. They are deeply Christian communities, and they're proud of it. They are absolutely convinced that their solid faith makes them morally strong, and they have a lot of evidence to show for that. Before the shootings, violence was virtually unknown in either of these places. People moved there to get away from what they thought were big city troubles in Paducah and Jonesboro. No one locks their doors at night. Friday nights in the summertime, you could find three dozen baseball teams out on the pitch. Parents and kids spend a lot of time together. They do not seem to know the meaning of the idea of generation gap. The narratives that they have about their communities inclines residents to discount any evidence of the contrary. And this is especially true when that evidence is coming at a good, solid family. Lawyers, well-educated well homemakers, hard-working postal employees, as Andrew Golden said. Nobody expects these kinds of families to produce killers. They figure that's not going to happen. That's going to happen in the troubled inner city, they think, not in their backyard. So that master narrative of the perfect place to raise a family subtracts a lot of information that doesn't square with these idyllic villages, not just from these families, but of teens in general. Crystal methamphetamine is very popular in rural areas of Arkansas, and drug pushes are not unknown in Westside High School. The Virgin Pledge Club in Heath High School has a significant number of highly sexually active young people. The master narrative contains elements of redundant safety systems. When Diane Vaughn studied the Challenger space shuttle disaster, she led us to understand that engineers thought it might be okay to take slightly larger risks with those O-rings because there were redundant safety systems that should have caught the problem in the making, and we didn't learn how bad it was until the Challenger blew up on the, on the, on the platform, well, in the air, I guess. Parents in Heath and Westside thought their communities were insulated from danger because they have redundant safety systems, too. They told us repeatedly their neighbors always look out for the kids and always report back to them that their kids are doing something wrong. And kids say the same thing. Indeed, they complain they can never get away from the 
eyes in the back of their parents' heads because somebody's going to report to their parents if they step out of line. And there's a lot of truth to this. Under certain circumstances, parents do inform one another. As a result, kids in communities that are rich in what we sociologists call cultural capital respond by driving deviant behavior deeper underground so it's harder to observe. They become very adept at withholding information because they know how quickly it ramifies through information networks. So when your teacher is also someone who grew up with your mother, who is also the leader of the church group and the driver of the school bus, as is true in Westside, you're very careful about what you say to her because what surfaces in one place is going to surface in another. The very stability that makes places like this so rich in cultural capital, it makes them perfect places, also makes the potential for rupture in the social fabric very scary. In focus groups with parents, we asked them whether they would report to their neighbors if they saw that someone doing the kinds of things that Andrew Bolden did. And at first they said, absolutely, absolutely, that's why we live here. We live here because we trust our neighbors and we know they'll look out for our kids. But after a while, a different truth emerged from the same focus group. Actually, nobody likes to hear bad news about their kids. The bearer of this news will be looked upon as a bit of a busybody. They better have motives that are completely, utterly pure. The cost of coming forward and being condemned for it is very high if you plan to live next door for the next 30 years. So people don't come forward. No one ever said anything to the parents of these shooters about their son's worrying behavior. They told their own kids, don't play with that toy, and drove them to school instead of letting them sit on the bus where they'd have to deal with it. The dark side of social capital is evident here. The tighter the bonds, the riskier it is to cut them. And the nature of the information circulating, while very troubling, is still pretty ambiguous. Shooters don't advertise their intentions in this community. It's pretty bad news that Andrew was killing cats, but that doesn't necessarily tell you he's going to shoot people in the school unless you really know what you're looking at. So the very qualities that make these insular communities tight-knit, comforting, and full of solidarity pushes the behavior of deviance below the radar screen. So the consequences of tight-knit, isolated communities is that you get concealment games, false confidence in the surveillance systems that are supposed to pick up deviant behavior, signals that are misinterpreted, conflict avoidance and the restriction of information, and a pronounced tendency to blame the messenger. So let me conclude. I'm going to include, conclude with an advertisement for my own discipline to try and persuade you that the sociological perspective actually tells us something important about these kinds of tragedies. First, it directs our, us away from the idea that this is a spontaneous behavior uh, associated with someone who is simply falling apart. Instead, we see this as a tragic outcome of adolescent problem solving. They are trying to reverse their reputations and claim a more honored identity of a notorious kind. Second, that we have structured forms of organizational deviance in which the outcomes are not what organizations intend, but these are regular forms of blockage of information that make it very difficult to see patterns develop and filter out information that could potentially signal a problem coming so that higher and higher up the hierarchy is not visible. And finally, you have the liabilities of living in a community with high social capital. Now, these are necessary but not sufficient conditions. You cannot predict where a school shooting is, happen, is going to happen. You can't say that every community like this is going to experience a school shooting. There are hundreds of thousands of American communities on that map, and only 
unfortunately for us, a handful of school shootings. But it does tell us that our best bet, if we can't predict where it's going to happen, is to try and tip the odds via information, to figure out ways to make it easier for kids to come forward when they hear these rumors, so that we'll get a little bit more of those red dotted lines and a little bit fewer of those blue lines of completed shooting. Because we really don't want to see people like this much anymore. Michael Carneal, at the age of 19, in the Kentucky State Reformatory, which is where he will spend most of his adult life. And most definitely, people like this, the victims of the shooting in Westside, four children and a very beloved teacher uh, who, who will not walk the face of the earth again. certainly more plentiful in our society than they have been before. But it turns out that's not because more people have guns. It's because the same people have more guns. So unless you think that the same people having more guns somehow makes guns more accessible, that's, that turns out not to be a terribly persuasive theory of why these shootings were gathering pace uh, into the 1990s. But it is certainly the case that where people can get their hands on guns, they can pull off a shooting, and where they can't, it's pretty hard. The problem with the gun control uh, solution, which of course is something many people hope yeah. will make a difference, is that in the societies we know of that have the tightest possible gun restrictions, like Germany, which has, it's very hard to, to get your hands on a gun. Uh, you have to be registered in the club. It's, it, it's a very long and expensive process. But the worst school shooting of all time took place in airport Germany. Um, a dedicated person can get their hands on a gun, even in a society where it's tightly controlled. That said, I'm certainly an advocate of gun control. I think anything that frustrates the ability to get your hands on guns will make a difference. But in terms of the attitude of the community, um, the parents would say to us, oh, no, guns were all around when I was a kid. They're not hardly as available now as they were because we don't go hunting after school anymore. These rural areas are exurbs now. They're not open hunting territory so much. So I think it's uh, not an unimportant issue, but it's not, it's not necessarily the whole I did. Actually, about a third of the book is about what happens afterwards, about the aftermath. And here I have almost nothing but tragedy to read you. Um, in the beginning, it's a little bit like the aftermath of a war. Everyone pulls together because they have experienced this terrible calamity, and there's a tremendous amount of solidarity and concern, uh, both for the families of the shooters and, of course, for the families of the victims. Within about three months, starts to fall apart into divisions between those who really experienced the tragedy, the parents of these children, and people who were there but didn't lose someone who loved them, and then people who weren't there at all. And this begins to become 
a rather unpleasant dialogue about who owns this bed. And so unfortunately, in most of these places, the immediate sense of solidarity, which literally some of the pastors I interviewed compared to the end of World War II, this sort of tremendous, almost euphoric sense of solidarity, just shatters. Um, and it shatters when money is involved, when, when money comes to help the victims, uh, you know, to get treatment, for example. Who gets this money? Who gets this treatment? Is somebody who's having nightmares, even though they didn't lose someone, uh, deserve this? Well, you start getting people saying, geez, you know, why doesn't she get over it? She didn't really lose that much. But, you know, people react to terrible tragedies very differently. I felt like a total wreck even six months after 9-11, and I didn't lose anybody. We react very differently to these kinds of catastrophes. And you could see the same thing happen after 9-11. Tremendous arguments over who, who gets that, who gets those resources, who deserves that training. The worst of all were the teachers. Teachers who actually had to hold a dying child and make decisions under extraordinary pressure about what to do for them were criticized for not getting over it by people who they thought, you know, hadn't had to go through such a began to second-guess these responses. Those furthest from the tragedy, of course, generally speaking, have the easiest time getting over it. And after a while, they don't really want to hear about it so much. Um, there's a, a portrait in the book, which was uh, like a charcoal drawing of these kids and teacher that was given to the school as a kind of memorial. The school won't keep it anymore. It's in the back of the district attorney's office now because they don't want to have a graveyard. They, they want a school. And so there's a tremendous urge on the part of those who suffered a tragedy to have remembrance. And there's a tremendous urge on the part of those who have a school to run to get this graveyard out of the way because they've got new kids in the original school to, to operate. So a lot of the book is exactly about this issue at the end, and it's a, it's a very sad portrait of a community kind of falling apart at Well, the Golden family moved away. Um, they moved into the hills. They still have their jobs, uh, but they were just so distraught and devastated, they, they, they disappeared. The Carneal family remained in the community and were really honored and loved by the community, who concluded that something really bizarre and odd had happened to Michael, but they didn't really blame them, in part because they had tremendous sociological status to begin with. Whereas the families of the shooters, uh, of the victims rather, had a slightly different view of Carnell. Uh, they had a view that busy professional lawyers don't spend enough time with their kids. Uh, how come they didn't see he was had schizotypal personality disorder? Uh, something, you know, this wasn't thoroughly investigated. Or we, tremendous conspiracies surrounding the people who knew what was going to happen and didn't come forward. A lot of anguish, and uh, you know, these kids are still in psychiatric treatment today because they didn't come forward with the first. I mean, in the case of Mitchell Johnson's best buddy in Westside, he showed him a list of the people he wanted to shoot. He sat on the edge of his bed, showed him a list. That kid is fascinating today. Well, I think I'm not a psychiatrist, but the psychiatrist that I know uh, would say that animal abuse is usually a sign of something terribly wrong inside a kid. It doesn't necessarily lead to this outcome, but 
but it's not a good, you know, it's not a, it's a problem. It's something people should definitely look into because it is often uh, a signal of great, of really deep disturbance. Um, but, you know, I can't say that every one of these school shooters across the country in, indulged in animal abuse. We just don't have that clear of a picture. It's a very good question, and honestly, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to answer it because we don't have data from places that are, are that far away or that long ago. We, we, we didn't even have a category called rampage shootings until the late 90s, and then you see people try to backtrack. And to be honest, I don't know how good the database is going backwards. Uh, and the Centers for Disease Control database includes a lot of other things, as I explained. Um, I do know this. When, you know, when when knives were the weapon of choice, it's much harder to kill a whole bunch of people. Uh, you, it's, with a gun, especially an automatic weapon, it doesn't take much time. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think interdicting information is so critical, because by the time you call the police, the dead are all over the floor. It, it, not, these events took place in less than a minute in both cases. And so it's, not, it's certainly not good to rely on that as your, as your backup. In the near-miss cases? I have to tell you that in the near-miss cases are never reported in as much of depth as the actual shootings, not that surprisingly. I went on the web just before coming here to try to find out more about Winslow High School. Not easy to get any information about Winslow High School, even though they arrested three or four kids, and, and those kids are going to be tried on terrorism uh, statutes here in the state of New Jersey. Um, so the, we didn't have an extent. We, we had what we had, and we did the best that we could. Are they different? They're not different in terms of the characteristics of the community. The only difference is somebody came forward. Now, interestingly enough, this I did. This, this is such a small database, you can only take this as suggestive. Where we know the gender of the person who came forward is always a girl. There are lots where we don't know, but where we know, it's a girl. Uh, there was a, a near-miss case in Fall River in Massachusetts, which was somewhat illustrative of this. So a girl gets kind of taken in by a boyfriend into the plot, but girls tend to be better at retaining their ties to other people. She got worried about teachers getting killed, and she came forward, broke the plot, and they found an arsenal in these boys' houses. So there is certainly something about being able to retain ties to other people that encourages folks to come forward. But if they don't think it's going to be kept confidential, they don't get their boyfriend in trouble. do a lot of research on that, but I can tell you that there are tons of false positives, tons of them. And that's one of the reasons that this is so hard to actually detect. How do you tell the difference between someone who really means it? The West Winslow, the Winslow case is going to be a case in point. They didn't find any weapons. They found kids trying to procure a weapon, but they didn't actually find weapons. And the father of one of the, one of the kids that was busted is basically saying, look, this is, they didn't mean this. This is a prank. They're just blowing off steam. And of course, the more these cases happen, the more kids know this kind of steam will get attention, and they say more things of this kind. Oh, yes. 
I don't know about that specific. And in fact, the, the Secret Service's view is the more specific it is, the more seriously you should take it. If it's very vague, you know, that maybe that's not as, as indicative. But if it's specific by date, by name, by place, take it seriously. And it's better to risk a false positive than that secret will fail to Absolutely. And we did, um, with great humility, I, I wrote a chapter in the book which was about what we've learned from this and what might be done. And I say with great humility because virtually every intervention I could think of has a negative repercussion. And we, so communities need to debate whether the negatives are worth invoking when uh, these occasions are still thankfully quite rare. Because you could set up a police state in which everybody would come forward. Um, do you want that? Do we? And in fact, when kids realize they can come forward and implicate others, they sometimes get quite mischievous about this. They know that can be used as an instrument to destroy someone, and they do sometimes. They're nasty occasionally. But here's what we recommended. Kids come forward when they're confident the information is confidential. So there is a program in many schools called School Resource Officers. These are people who are part of the criminal justice system, not part of the school bureaucracy. Um, they're not, they're what they sometimes called soft cops. They're, they're not carrying weapons and so on. They're, and they're often young. Um, and their job in these schools is to get to know the kids and kind of hang out in the cafeteria and become trusted figures. But the kids recognize they don't report into the school bureaucracy. And they feel more insulated and able to come forward because of that fact. Uh, school resource officers, I think, are a very fine idea. And uh, I've said so in front of many police audiences who usually think this is a fine idea, too, um, because it helps to employ their members. But, um, <laughs> but unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that's often uh, first to go when the budgets get tight. And uh, you, know, you have to believe that protecting a school against an extremely rare event is worth uh, the expenditure. We also recommended that a practice that's actually quite widespread for other reasons. We think that things like, we thought things like team teaching, other opportunities that bring teachers together to share information would be valuable because they're more likely to spot a pattern when there is a, a sort of ritualized or, or routine way in which sharing information develops. We don't think that disciplinary records should be burned across these boundaries. However, we do think they should be held privately by appropriate figures like the school principal because those expectancy effects are real. And you don't want to see hundreds of thousands of kids destroyed in ninth grade um, for this. On the other hand, had they known about Michael Carneal's past, maybe they would have looked at him a little differently when he started doing similar things in high school. So uh, the last thing I'll say about this is that we do worry about very strict no tolerance policies, which is often the first reflex. Any community that's been assaulted by such an awful thing, you know, the first thing they do is say, right, anybody breathes a word of, of violence, but, you know, I'm going to kill that guy, you know, sit, they're out. And we saw a, a, a steep spike in expulsions and all kinds of other disciplinary actions. The problem with this is that when kids who have information about a shooting see this happen, first they realize, in the face of ambiguous information, if they come forward, somebody really will be nailed. No one is going to investigate whether or not they should be. They're just going to nail them because they'll, 
the adults will be so afraid of making a mistake that they're going to just go with a conservative approach and just expel anybody who makes a comment. And that will prevent them from coming forward. Because they will not want to subject their friends to that if they are, unless they're absolutely certain uh, of the of what will happen. So I, I think what kids want to see is that adults act on what they tell them, but they act privately and they act with all due deliberation and they think that school resource officers will genuinely investigate, but they'll investigate quietly and try to determine the difference between something real and something Hey, my freshman seminar group, there you are. <laughs> That's a very good question, and it's not an easy one to answer. Um, but here's what, what we thought. Um, Electing to solve your reputational problem with a school shooting depends partly on a script being born that says this will actually achieve the degree of notoriety that you're looking for. So it's much harder to explain why it first began than it is to explain why it continued. Because you're on the evening news in a nanosecond when this happens. You're looking for a way to strike a very visible pose. This is one way to do it, but you wouldn't have known that until it began to happen. So it's easier to explain why the trend accelerated and why it began in the first place. And the first place part, I'm not sure I can ever, will ever be able to, to explain. So then people have said to me, well, should we clamp down on the media reporting this stuff? And here, again, is a double-edged sword. The only reason kids come forward is they know it's real, and they only know it's real if it's reported. So we also have the media to thank for the fact that they know it's real, but the consequence of this can often be to give people an idea of what would make Thank you so much for your questions. I'll be happy to stay around afterwards.